This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. So excited that you're joining us today um, for the Breakbeat Poets Live with Miss Cheryl Boyce Taylor and Alexis Pauline Gums. We're super, super, super excited. Both of these fantastic readers are joining us to celebrate Cheryl's most recent book, Mama Five Represents. Um, Cheryl's going to kick us off with a reading from her incredible new book before we get into what I'm sure will be a powerful dialogue with Alexis. Special thanks to our captioner today, Miss Diane Scott. We so appreciate you being available. Um, and be sure to show some love in the chat, buy Cheryl's book, buy Alexis's fabulous books, post any questions there for our speakers, um, and we'll go ahead and get those at the end. So without further ado, let's get into this work, y'all. All right. I'm so excited to be here today. I The book is so new, I'm still pinching myself. Is this real? I wake up at four o'clock in the morning thinking, oh my God, Malik would be so thrilled. Anyway, mighty thanks to the Breakbeat Poet series, to Haymarket Books, to my lovely friend, Alexis Pauline Gums. I'd like to thank you, Erica, again, and all, everyone that has supported the birth of this new baby. I'm so excited. I'm gonna share a few poems today about Malik and the early years. Um, in the book, I have letters and poems and some of his rap. And so I'm gonna start with the dialogue where I believe that this was the summer that Fife was born. So I'm gonna start there. The summer Malik was 10, we were making plans for him to attend the YMCA in Queens again. When he told me how he hated that camp and did not wanna go anymore, he had spent three previous summers there and seemed to really like it. I wanted to know why he didn't want to go anymore. He told me that the children fought and cussed a lot and that he'd rather stay home with his grandmother. She was a lot of fun and they did things together like visit family, shop for fruit, study his Bible lessons and cook. They even went to vacation Bible school together. I knew lots of playtime was secretly written in between the lines of this righteous listing. So I made him a journal and I asked him to record his thoughts and send me a note every day telling me how he was and what he was doing. The first note went something like this. 
Malik played in the hot sun today, scrimmage and baseball. Then he rested with a cool piece of watermelon. Grandma got stung by a bee and Malik did too. That was the beginning of a series of letters, journal entries, poems and songs he wrote to his dad and I that year. I will always believe that Fife was born that summer. July 24th, 1981. Dear Malik, you may not realize it now, and I know you think I am a mean old mom, but one day you'll realize all my fussing, yelling, and spankings were just as painful for me as it was for you. I want you to be a success in everything you do. That's why all the nagging. So write me a letter each day telling me of your activities and how you're getting along. It will help you to express real feelings and make you a better writer. Letters, poems, and lyrics arrived that summer. Then Rapper's Delight, Run DMC and LL Cool J swarmed our living room. Rap and hip hop became staples of Malik's life. It was not long before he learned the pleasures of words spoken with music. Our home was always a haven, a haven for political music and poems. We listened to Gil Scott Heron, Amiri Baraka, the Last Poets, Dick Gregory, Angela Davis, Nikki Giovanni, Sonia Sanchez, The Mighty Sparrow, Lord Kitchener, and most of all, Bob Marley. When Malik was eight, my mother spent six weeks helping him memorize Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream for a church cotillion. He did really well and received lots of encouragement and praise. A light switch went on. He carried it throughout his life. This is one of the poems that he wrote that summer. And it's called A Piece of My Mind. Hey people, I hate to say this, but younger brothers around here hanging out on the corners and writing graffiti on the mailbox. They cut school and play Pac-Man, Galaxian, Donkey Kong, and they never stop. People, parents, you ought to give them a piece of your mind because when they get old, they'll show, no, they should have studied. So people, give them a piece of your mind. I've stitched your breath to my throat, child. Did your last howl resemble mine? All day I want to sit in ashes. All the stars have followed after you since you've been gone. This left hand has betrayed me, has grown into my mother's. My index finger so crooked, it refuses to wash clean the dinner dishes. 
My eyes too are disobedient. I've told them not to tear at the wound of name, son. Does it listen? Your mom has a pacemaker, Malik. That rebuilt heart too makes promises. It will rescue me, will sing pretty, will rebuild the heave and steam of my body. Each night, it takes a thigh, a breast, a begging skull, an arthritic knee. All around, there are unhinged bones waiting at the lip of sea. This piece is called Pray. He stood near my bed, one hand jammed in his pocket, his thinking cap on slightly crooked. He surveyed my face. Then the delightful boy of seven said, Mommy, do you pray? Yes, Malik, I responded. Mommy, he said more sternly, what words do you say? All the parents come to church except you two. I don't want to go to heaven and my parents are lost. I'm almost ready to be baptized, you know. All the parents come to church. I looked at my little Christian boy and did not have the heart to tell him we don't go to church on Saturdays, babe. We stay home to watch Soul Train. Malik calling from Jay Diller's house. The phone would ring. Ma, sistrin. What good? What up? What up? Hear what? I working on a benefit here with JD's mom. When I'm done, I'm going to swing through New York and pick you up. We go head Toronto for a Raptors game. Just a bit of mama and son chat up. Pack light. Love you, sister. Love you, boo. One. I'd grin wide and know he was up to he trinity that day. When a house lives alone, at one point um, I, in October of 2018, Malik had passed away about four years and his dad and I went to his house in Atlanta to pack his things up. It's called When a House Lives Alone and it's for Walt and Malik. When a house lives alone, it is still filled with love. What remains goes unsettled in us. We pack up your bathroom, Dad and I. I know you are laughing at us. This is what, is what it has come to. Mom and Dad, perfect strangers, packing up your house. There are bath towels still tied with ribbons, and store labels, two tubes of Tom's, of Maine Thompson, 
fennel and baking powder dried in the tube. When a house lives alone, beds go unmade for weeks, months even. Rubber soles of expensive sneakers melt together. We throw them out. In that long weekend of solitary packing, dinner looks like five minutes couscous and salad, oatmeal and raisins, a lone glass of Shiraz. The father puts more wood on the fireplace. Turn pages in an old album. You in daycare. You at eighth grade graduation. You with your first gold album. On your feet, crisp Air Jordan, Air Force Ones. The mother makes peppermint tea. An altar of white sage and crystals. Celebrate the fourth year anniversary of her son's death. Four years later, tears still flow. This morning, the same haunting questions. Malik, were you happy? Did you know how much we loved you? We pause at the mantle, a picture of us three in a green wood frame. Mother, father, son, Time is so unkind. Did he call my name in that hour? What did he know for sure? Was he still dreaming about having a child? Did the new album fill that space? Did he love me more than dad? All I ever wanted was to be a good mother. That last night, did he dream about his grandma? Was she at the gate to meet him? By now you must be out of pain. I blow a kiss to no one in particular, to weep until exhaustion, to fold with pain, to weep with joy. That too is the question, to weep with joy. That, too, is the answer. And finally, still the sweetest words I ever heard. And I really used these words throughout these memories as I was writing the book. I used them to comfort me, to propel me forward, and just to heal myself. This was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. Still the sweetest words I ever heard. My beloved grows right out of my own heart. How much more union can there be? That's by Rumi. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I made this picture for you, Mom. Mom, Grandma is my bestest friend ever. Mom, I'm coming home for your birthday. Mom, the album went gold. Be my date for the Grammys. Mom, I found my girl. She reminds me of you. Her name is Disha. Mom, I have a son. His name is David. Oh, I love that little guy. 
Happy birthday, mommy. Thank you so much for my laptop. It is the best birthday present you've ever given me. I have been at home all weekend writing and making music. I swear I'll never leave the house again. Words light life's path. Big ups, sister. Mom, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm getting married. Will you walk me down the aisle? Mom, I love you. Go on tour with me. You and Sini move to California with me. You'll get it kind of old. I mean, good old. Thank you. Wow. Well, well we, cannot we cannot see, see the, chat, the chat, but I know I folks are showing so, so much, much love. love. And I just, and I just say, say to you, you. Oh, voice Taylor, Mama Fife, revolutionary mother. I love you so much. I am so grateful that you are in my life. I feel like it's one of the miracle days of my life when, when after Fire and Ink in Austin, Texas, yes. we had the same layover. That was the miracle. <laughs> and you told me so many important stories, but you know how you had been part of the Stations Collective and how you had been a student of Audre Lorde and... I just was like, this is a gift. This is a gift. And I just began to pay attention to you and how you related to the daily ongoing work of poetry. And it actually was not that long after that time that your your mother ascended, your mother transitioned. Yes. And I remember the poems that you wrote at that time, I still hold those as an example of how you taught me to do what I know Audre Lorde taught, which is that in our poetry, we can really touch those emotions that otherwise we may protect ourselves from, but we actually can touch them and move through. And as you, as you just said, heal ourselves you know, really create the ceremony for that. And this is why you're one of my very favorite poets ever. I'm so honored to get to help hold space for this, this new birth and this new ceremony. And I want to start that way because what I'm so present to is the generosity of what you have created. Because this is, it's generous because you are sharing those poems, as you said, about, about the hardest thing. And you are showing us how you touch the deepest emotions of that experience and sharing it with all of us. But then not only that, you're sharing your photo album with us through this book. You're sharing, it's a memory book. You know, it has, for people who don't have the book yet, it has images of these letters between you and Malik, it has um, sacred artifacts. And I feel like with this book, you're allowing, you're allowing everybody to come right into your living room 
And then you're opening your chest and allowing them to come in even <laughs> deeper. And I can't, I can't say that I've, that I see that, that I see people doing this with such generosity. And I know it starts with a generosity to yourself to make space, to actually feel it all. And I just, I, your example has been very important to me in my, in my own writing and my own ceremonies for my own loss and my own grief, especially the loss of my father. And I know that for so many people, I'm only, I'm only one of the many, many people who are actually mothered by you in that way. And so I'm so moved, you know, I'm moved coming back to that moment where you say to Malik, you know, write it down. This will make you a better writer. And I realize that there's like an echo, not just a video chat echo, but but an echo of love and resonance around the planet because you make us better writers. Oh, thank you so much. You're gonna make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it's just true. And it and if the internet ceases to exist after this moment, this is what I must say. Just to thank you for your generosity to to all of us. And if there if there's anything that you want to say, anything more that you want to say about, you know, for those of us who our writing is not to, um, it's not to prove that we're smart. It's not just to sound pretty. It really is to get us through those things that we don't imagine we can get through. I wonder what you would share about your writing practice and process for other, for other writers who, who aspire to be as brave. So, um, thank you so much, Alexis. You mean so much to me. You're one of my daughter's sisters. <laughs> That's what I call you, brilliant and wonderful and generous young poets and writers that I have the privilege of knowing, the privilege of reading your works and learning from them. So I, I, I'm so happy because I know that this sharing is a two-way street and that we are all taking the time to share with each other, especially in this last year. Yes. As far as beginning this book, what was happening to me was that I was, I felt like I was losing my memory after Malik passed away. And and I've said earlier, it was the most crushing blow of my life. I did not think that I would come back from it. And I really have to thank my daughter-in-law, Disha, and my partner, Sini, for being there constantly. I felt like I was losing my mind. I wouldn't remember simple things. But my biggest fear was that I would not remember Malik. I know that that comes from some crazy grief because it was there for a long time. And it scared me so badly. And I said, now, generally, I write down things anyway, but there was a different urgency about writing this time. And the urgency was to keep memory. And so I began writing, not thinking it was a book, not caring, none of that, but just to remember. And so um, one day I said, 
to my partner, I, I turned to her and I said, was my brother at the funeral? And she said, yes. So then I knew I, I was really getting scared. I was like, okay, my hair is falling out. I'm not remembering phone numbers, people's faces. I especially am not remembering Malik's voice. And so that was scary. I went to therapy. That was one of all the great steps I did towards my healing. That was one of the things that I did. And I was really lucky to have a very good therapist who kept me focused and kept me being in helping me to meditate and be in touch with my loved ones that has that had passed away, my mother, um, Malik, and his twin brother. So this is one of the ways I worked through it. And then as I began writing, I realized that it was a book, and I realized that I wanted to share with his fans because so many people knew Fife, but no one really knew. Well, family and close friends, but other people didn't know Malik. And I wanted them to get to know how this little boy, little cocky boy, <laughs> curious and outspoken, how he came to be Fife and a positive influence in the music world. So that that you know, those are some of the things. And then I and then I realized that I needed to write this book for him, for my daughter-in-law for my grandson, I just needed to document this. And that's what I do anyway. I document everything. <laughs> I love that. I love that, especially because one of the, one of the insights that, I, that I've heard you say that I then now say to other people all of the time is that you, you teach us that poetry is an archive and it's an archiving practice. And I remember I think this was, this must've been, I don't know. It was at one of your workshops that I went to and you said, you said my poetry is an archive because I want the way that my loved ones speak to exist forever. And what you're saying about hearing his voice, it's very moving. It's very moving to hear you voice him in this moment through the poems is different than, than reading them on the page. And, and with, with y'all's face, this is the same face. And, and, um, there's a, there's an experiential archive that we now are a part of because you have, you, I mean, you have done it. This, this goal of allowing people to see that, that little boy that, that only you knew in a particular way, that aspect of himself that he shared with you specifically, that you have shared that in the world so it can resound is just, again, it's generous, but it's also, it's also a profoundly accountable way of archiving and of offering what you hold sacred to to, to travel beyond, to travel beyond even us and, and this conversation. I truly have to remind myself, or not remind myself, but I have to repeat to myself every day that Audrey Lord said, 
poetry is not a luxury. That's right. And as I was writing this book, I kept holding on to it. And I kept saying that to myself because this is my sixth book, but it was the hardest book I've ever written. And, um, but I've been fiercest about it, like a real fierce mama. Yes. <laughs> this is what I want from this book. This is how I want you to help me with this book. I mean, things I would never ask from my of people from my other books. I'm like out here just saying, I want this. I want this. Oh, it's, it's exciting. I've, I I've love that. A lot. Yeah. I've changed a lot in my writing and my approach to the world and what I feel comfortable asking for. Uh, Malik has helped me in so many ways. I'm still meeting people through him. It's, it's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. What a gift. What a gift. So I'm seeing some questions from our audience. I think of you audience as a, as a loving circle here with us. And this is a, this is a question. I imagine this person is a writer. This person is asking the question, what are some tips you have, Cheryl, for writing about loss without being overly sentimental? Um, which is interesting because, you know, we talked about touching the feeling, right? Touching the feeling. And I would say that that is sentiment, right? Like we, we must feel it. Um, and I don't think that your work protects us from, from feeling, but I think that what your work, I know that what your work does do is it, it moves beyond any type of cliche, you know, it moves beyond all of those layers of things you know, that people say to make us feel better, even the things that we say to make ourselves feel better. And it breaks through to what, what really is your experience? What really is it, is it teaching you, um, on this plane and beyond? So how would you help, how would you help a writer who writing about their own loss seems to be getting stuck in, in these kinds of things we say to help feel better? So, to be clear, the question is, how do you write through loss without being sentimental? Is that, that the question? Overly sentimental. Overly yeah, that, that's the, fr the, the phrasing. Yeah. Well, I really feel that when you experience a profound loss, there is no sentimentality. Mm -hmm. There is just the truth and the pain and the missing that person's voice. I so miss when Malik used to call up and have all these exciting things to tell me. You know, he was on the road traveling and telling me, and it wasn't always exciting. Sometimes it would be about a fight or an argument he had, but he had such a passionate way of doing that. And I miss that. Mm -hmm. At one point in therapy, I was sharing with my therapist, how I was missing so much. I felt so helpless. And she said to me, well, yes, you're missing Malik, but you're also missing Fife Dog. Mm. And I said, that's it. That's because as Fife Dog's mother, I had a whole different kind of exciting life with him. Mm -hmm. as, his, as his mom, my son Malik, we had a family life, like everyone else does. But I was, I was hurting so badly. 
and missing him so much. I didn't think about sentimentality. I think that what you need to do is to be honest with your feelings. Mm -hmm. And Audrey Lord used to say this all the time, write it all down. And then you have all the opportunity to go back and edit. And if you have a good editor as I did with this book, that's something that you will explore. Is this overkill? Is this too sentimental? There were times when I took certain lines out because I had written something and then I went back and say, I said something like, oh, this causes me so much loss. Well, I didn't need to say that. You can tell it. So I think two things, be honest with yourself and show and not tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think. I think that's beautiful. And I love the freedom, you know, what, what you said about write it all and you can then choose what you share and you can come, come back to it. But I think that's right. I don't think that we should censor ourselves from the process by being afraid that it will be too anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You write it it without judgments of yourself. You're not thinking, what is this person going to think when they pick up this book? That shouldn't be what you're thinking. You should just be sharing your feelings, having a conversation with God, having a conversation with yourself on paper. I didn't realize that this book was so much a conversation between Malik and I until I was almost near the end. I was like, wow, I I really and honestly didn't realize that because I I gave myself that permission. Mm -hmm. When you have gone through as much as I had gone through with Malik's illness, because he had been a type one diabetic for a very long time, you're honest with yourself and you're honest with your feelings. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. This is uh, another question. Oh, for both of us. Well, like we'll start with you because because <laughs> you're my teacher. Um, the, the person, Amora Blessing, has been feeling called to write a spiritual memoir of their experience with disability after working as a healer. Any advice to someone who hasn't a clue how to write a book? Mm. Okay, so <laughs> as I said, this is my sixth book. So I I thought I had some ideas of of how to put a book down. It didn't happen with this book. It was like, first of all, I I said to myself, I I knew I could write 60 sad poems, (laughs) but that would not serve any purpose, really. What I wanted to do was to sit down, write about my story, talk about Malik, and also to pull in the things that made me happy about his life and lots of things. But the part of his life that was the most enchanting for me, and his whole life was enchanting, don't get me wrong. But the part that was, was that I became his mother when I was 19. So I was a girl. I didn't know that a two-year-old child can stand up and tell you, well, mom, so-and-so, and I want to do that. And no, I have to do that. I need, for example, we'd be sitting there looking at television and he liked, he liked food at that time. 
and he would go up to the TV and said, give me some, give me some. That He was begging the TV. <laughs> or he would say, if there was, was a toy that came on, he would say, I'm getting that. I'm getting that. I mean, his spirit was something that I had never known because I grew up in the Caribbean household that had a lot of punitive rules about how a child should be in the world. So as I wrote that book, I kept going back to all of his little, all the little anecdotes that made us so in awe and happy about this child that we were raising. Um, That's probably gone a little far to say, just write what you feel. You'll have an opportunity to reorganize, to take things out, to put other things in. Just sit and write. Yeah, sometimes I think we're afraid of that. Mm-hmm. You know, as as I was saying to my partner the other day, we were talking about someone who wanted to try and write about their sorrows also. And I said, and she's a very spiritual woman, a religious too. And I said, start writing those letters to God. Mm. Start writing them to your mother, your father, yourself, anybody but just start writing. You can always shift that whole thing around. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know I quote Audrey a lot. <laughs> you, you know, it's never too much for me. <laughs> but Audrey always said, put it down and then you can go back and cut. Yeah, I love that. I, I completely agree. I think that for this person who's creating a spiritual memoir, it... um it is less a question of what does it take to make it into a book, especially at the beginning. The question that I would ask myself is what's the ceremony that I need to have in relationship to this, which I feel reflected in what you said, Cheryl, about what's the letter you need to write to God? What's the letter that you need to write to the people who are involved in your journey that this spiritual memoir is about? What are what is the What is the ceremony that this writing needs to do for you. And some of those things may not become part of the book and some of them may, and all of them will teach you more about what you want to share about that experience with other people, but you're your first audience, you know? And so for me, everything I write, it's a ceremony for me first. And then, as you said, I can look back at it and be like, oh, what what would it mean to share this with other people? What would be the way to share this with other people with with grace? But but yes, like have that ceremony. Write write those things out. I completely agree. And I think also one of the other things. What do you want to say to the world? Mm. What, even though you're going through so much. What lessons do you want to share? What generosity do you have in your heart to give to other people? Because ultimately, if one person picks up this book and feel like it's changed their life in some way or given them something new to run to, I'm down for that. And I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. We can feel it because, of course, you start with that question of generosity because this is just such a it's such a gift. And actually, this question is related to that. And it's from Sister Dr. Janica Lewis. This is this is a loved one who I've known since I was in seventh grade um, and says, 
Okay, Lex, Sister Dr. Gums, you, Sister Mother, so many of us, and we are so grateful. And the question for us is, how are we each mothered communally? And Danica also says, thank you both for your archives. So yeah, how how are you mothered communally? How do you feel mothered by, by community? Well, I have all these daughters and sons. <laughs> you know, my... My poet friends, all younger than me, uh, but we have just, what we share is a love of word, a love of helping others, given to our community. I've always made community, community through literature, through poetry. And there are so many other people that want to do the same thing. But I tell you something, I knew that I was loved by my community. And the main reason is because I love my community mm. and I work with my community. And I'm generous with my writing, with my heart, with everything I know. I feel like I was blessed with Audre Lorde and June Jordan and Entezaki Shange. The, I was able to study with these people and the things that they gave me, I could not keep to myself. I had to give that to the next generation and beyond. But I must say that when Malik passed away, the love that we received from community, from friends, from family, from people that we did not know, that has mothered me. I, I really, I, I'm telling you, I went to, I went to, to friends. I would go to different friends. Like I have this friend, Mariah, that's an Ikari Tally, who is really a spirit woman. She's a root woman. And uh, she had me over to her house. This was like maybe a week, two weeks after. And she made me tea. And she talked to me and she just let me cry. Now, she was mothering me all the way. Idrissa Simmons, who is in California, she and her husband, I went there, they mothered me and took care of me. I don't know. I just felt loved and supported and people were giving back what I've given. And I think that that's one of the most important things. If we want to be mothered, we have to mother. If mm. we want to be loved, we have to love. Oh, I love that. I love that. It makes me think of that, that saying, giving is receiving. Yeah. You know, that, that it's, it's both. It's, it's always both. I love this question too, because and I love you, Janica, and, you know, I feel like you're psychic. I, I think that I really have made a commitment to allow myself to be mothered more because there's also a vulnerability to receiving love. And that vulnerability has been scary to me at different moments. And it's also the only thing, it's like the only thing that, um, that matters. And so I'm thinking about this example of, actually, you know what, this was, this was the day before, this was the day before when we had the revolutionary mothering event at Blue Stockings in New York City. And of course, you know, Cheryl, because you were there. And 
for folks who don't know, Cheryl is one of the authors who who wrote a beautiful piece, a beautiful piece about you and Malik for the book Revolutionary Mothering that, that I co-edited with my co-editors, Maya Williams and China Martins. And we had our very first event all together at Blue Stockings in New York City. And it was like, it was so packed in there. It was, it was like my my family of origin folks were there the chosen family folks were there so many of us who created this book together were there um and i remember that my younger sister was very pregnant with my first niece <laughs> she was there and it was like this dream of multi-directional mothering that was that was happening and I feel I feel like kind of the spectrums of it were my younger sister who people were giving advice and they were saying oh, okay you're in this month you know watch out for this and they were offering these blessings you know for her as she was carrying my niece and that meant so much um because there has has also been loss as part of that journey for her to become a mother and and then you were like our queen, you know, you were like our our queen of like, uh, you know, like just the power and the power of what you shared when, when you shared the poem and and our shared understanding of the impact of of your mothering, both, as you say, your mothering of the person, Malik, but also your mothering of the breakthrough, the creative contribution, the artistic transformation that we all have experienced, everybody in that room, but like everybody in the world has experienced called Fife. And it was like the power of that mothering. And we were so happy to be able to celebrate it. And of course, then we were very surprised the next day. Um, and all of our love was with you. You know, all of all of us were uh, he passed away that next day. That was something else. Oh my goodness! Because yeah. I, um, I had not read that poem anywhere before, and it was, you know, the poem about his joy and his illness, and him being in the hospital, and mm-hmm. me going and squeezing him tight, and one of the last what at the. When I in that poem, I talk about how I squeeze him up so much because I I didn't get to see him a lot, and he would be like, "Ouch, ouch, my ouch," because yeah. he had so much pain. I mean, he also loved the hugs, but you know, he was a man, so he had to say, "Ma, stop!" And I'd be like, <laughs> "I never see you. What do you want from me?" So, yeah, that <laughs> that was a very hard time. Mm-hmm. Thinking about it now. And I have good days. And then sometimes out of a clear blue, I will hear a song and I'm a mess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I want us to I want us to be able to continue to encircle you, you know, just to continue to encircle you in that love. And um, thank you. You all do. Oh, wow. Another beautiful question is from Elizabeth Perez, who says, I am a mother to a big spirited, sweet four year old black boy child. He loves dirt bikes, 
and smoothies. Mama Fife, could you talk about the ways to nurture our ch- our children's spirit amidst the chaos we're living in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that that's a really good question. And I'm thinking about it and times have changed so much because, you know, I, I, I raised Malik some 50 years ago, but the only thing I think still stands true is to let them speak, let them share with you whatever they want to share with you without judgments. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, I guess I could give an example. When Malik was taking piano lessons for a period, and then one day he said to me, I'm not going back to piano lessons. Mm. And, and you know, I didn't, his dad and I didn't really stop him from speaking in the affirmative. That's what I, I like to call it. Mm-hmm. And the way that I was raised, that would be considered rude, we didn't we didn't think so. He said, I'm not going back to piano lessons. And I was like, okay, why? He said, the teacher's breath stinks. And I'm not <laughs> gonna sit there and smell that. I, I'm not doing it anymore. And we were like, okay. I said to him, okay, but you have to pick something else. You can't just sit home and watch television. That's not going to happen in this house. So think about it and pick something else that you would like to do. And then let's talk about it and let's do it. So he was allowed to speak. He was not allowed to be rude to us or other people. But I, we had felt that Black men in this country did not really have the right to speak any, you know, as much as they wanted to. That was one thing I noticed Mm -hmm. from the time I came to New York when I was 13. And I didn't want that for him. We didn't know a lot of things as two young parents, 19 and 21, but we knew we were going to let him express himself. And also it's one of the ways you find out what your children are up to. Right. Just let them talk and you're like, oh, oh, so what did you say? And what did you do? Oh, wow. So, you know, I mean, that was just my way, but it worked because he came to me with everything until some point when he was already on tour, he was telling me some personal stuff. And I was like, oh, God, no, I don't, I don't hear all that. I don't want to know. And he said, well, I'm just being open with you. You always encouraged me to be open with you. So mm-hmm. I think open, love, affection, listening to the whole story about what they want to do, because it might make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I love that. And we have and another trusting, few more. Tr- trusting them too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a long way. I love that. Jillian McCommons has a question. Jillian says, thank you for this conversation. And then says, can you talk about Malik's connection with his grandmother? I really enjoyed the piece about him wanting to spend time with her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, um, my mother was the other co-parent because I think I've mentioned that his dad and I were 19 and 21 when we had him. And so my mother, who's a Caribbean woman who knows all things and who can do all things, <laughs> Caribbean mothers, um, she was always there to help. So from the time he was very little, she was the other caretaker. Um, Malik was also premature. I think I may have said that. He was also a premature baby. And so my mother really, she was studying nursing at the time, or she was interested in nursing. And she had raised my brother and I. So she came over often, every day almost. She didn't move in and that was all. (laughs) (laughs) She, She was there all the time helping us to take care of him. So he knew her as as a person who really loved him, who would care for him. She took him to church. You know, those Saturdays we stayed home to look at Soul Train. <laughs> My mother took him to church. because we, we were Seventh-day Adventists. But, you know, once you're grown up and you have a baby and you're living on your own, you don't have to go to church, right? So my mom took him to church. I mean, she helped him to study. She helped him to memorize long poems. She was very, they were very, very close. And it was like that until the very end. And so she didn't spank him, but she did set limits for him, which which is also something that you have to set. You you give them a little free range, but you have to set limits. And um, so my mother was very loving to him. And where we fell off, she picked up the slack. Sometimes I would have to tell her, he's not your child. I'm making that decision about that. You know, and he would look to her hoping she would agree with what he wanted to do. So anyway, it was just a close-knit family. And he was her only grandchild. Mm -hmm. It's just my brother and I and my son. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow, so beautiful. But in those days, you know, we really relied and counted on our parents. and, And we were so lucky because we lived just blocks apart. And I feel it for parents now because that doesn't always happen. But, you know, you, you have chosen family. You can choose your family. So that, that's a good option. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I'm thinking about in this moment, I'm thinking about the image that you offered um, of, their, of their possible reunion you know, your, your mother and Malik. And it's a beautiful, it's such a beautiful image to think about that. And in this moment, I'm thinking about their presence here, you know, like their presence here, always with you, but with, with us, because you, you bring them. And I wonder if there's anything that you would want to say, share with us about that, what, what it feels like to have, um, what it feels like to hold them and, and their spirit and memory um, now. Well, oh, m- my mom and I were always very close. 
I was close to my dad too, but um, we we all didn't live together. My dad lived in the same town and I spent a lot of time with him, but my mother was the major caretaker and her biggest gift she wanted me to have was education. And once she laid out what she wanted for me, I believed in it. I, I just knew that this was what I was going to do to make her happy. And I think of her now and, and she was the kind of mother. Don't tell other people your business. You've got to keep things to yourself. But by the time she died, she had changed that. Mm. And she was so happy for my writing. I remember with my first book, Raw Air, I didn't want to give it to her because I had told some family stories in there. And I did, and I didn't want to give it to her. I wanted to just hide it, but eventually I gave it to her and I was like, Oh no, she's going to be so mad. She's going to be so upset. And then one day she called and the cover was blue, like sky blue. And one day she called me and she said, I'm driving along and I'm looking at the sky and you know what? It's your book. Oh, I love that book so much. (laughs) I'm telling you, I was so surprised because I knew she was going to say something, but she encouraged me to write. The one thing though, she did not like curses. Mm. Mm-hmm. She did not like me to put any curses in my book. And I was like, mom, listen, that's a generation I come from. I'm sorry. I have to be authentic. But she, so when I think about my mother, I really get a smile on my face first because she was the poet. She didn't write poetry, but she memorized long poems and recited them throughout the house. And she read poems to Malik and I had bedtime. So that was really important to me. And that stays with me. It stays in my heart. When I think about my poems, I thank my mother. In fact, I have a a writing group that's called Elma's Heart Circle. Mm. Because of my mother. And then Malik, he's with me all the time. There's this little thing that I have. Um, I, I would be thinking about him sometimes. And I would go past the clock or look at the clock on the TV and see it says his birthday. And I say, hi, Malik. (laughs) Sounds so silly. But I'm telling you, it really gathers me up and hugs me close. Mm. And, um, you know, I have his I have his big old robe and it's heavy robe. I put that robe around me. I, I don't know. I have him with me all the time. Oh, I love that so much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. And actually it occurs to me, well, because you said, you said your mother doesn't like the cursing, but then I was thinking about the battle rap that is in this book, um, (laughs) which I, which I love and you don't have to read it, but, um, and folks who haven't read the book yet, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, but the, that, Coupled with the fierceness you said that you found in relationship to to this book, you know, like the the fierceness to be like, no, I'm claim I'm claiming this, I'm asking for this, I'm being clear about this. Um, that 
it is so it's it's so beautifully um well it seems to be the same energy in fact um except obviously there's more generosity in the energy around the whole book than this particular um this particular just full raw brilliant battle cry i just love oh. it <laughs> is there anything that you want to say about fierceness or maybe even for the people who are listening how to channel their fierceness in relationship to their creativity in relationship to to their work the work that's most important to them again as i said i just write it down with no apologies with gratefulness in your heart and knowing that you you want to share something with at least one person who can benefit from it or who will enjoy it or who will cr- laugh and but but just write it down you cannot be apologetic for your your stories your culture your language there's no way mm-hmm. you know i share i i share my grandmother's voice sometimes in a book and my grandmother was not an easy person but i want you to know that about her i want you to know that she also delivered babies and she was not a trained midwife i want you to know about my relationship with my father i don't know just just share honestly and not be afraid this is not the time to be afraid and maybe i'm i'm so unafraid because I'm 70 now and don't care what I say. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I I don't care. I just want to want to put it out there and the other night when I when Hanif was asking me questions, he asked what did I want my legacy to be? I just want words in the world. Honest words. Words to love and cherish and to grow by. Mm, I that's, love that. Yeah, that's that's my legacy. Words, poetry. It which is. honors my mother. I feel it honors my mother. It honors Malik and it honors me. So I have to do it. Mhm. And I think I mean I have as long as I've known you, I've always seen that fierceness in you. I mean, I think that I think that it I mean we've talked about this before but I think that it took a fierceness to to get your MFA at the time that you did it. It it took a fierceness before that to um you know go to Audrey Lloyd's poetry class. You know? oh. <laughs> um not <laughs> that she would have let you not cuz I know she really wanted you to. But yeah, but well, there's I mean I even think that whole poem from when I met her and she invited me is in my next book we are not wearing helmets which should be coming out from Northwestern University in the fall hopefully it's so, so you read good. that it's very, very I was very scared but sometimes you have to go past that and the other thing that makes me just go for the poetry is that Audrey Lord had invited me to St. Croix and I felt oh no I'm not even a good poet and I didn't go can you imagine mm. I didn't go I've never done that again I have learned so much from that I was afraid 
but there are times you cannot, in these times, let me rephrase that, in these times you cannot let fear be what guides you. Mm-hmm. That's right. Matter. Nobody yeah. else is afraid. Everybody's out there doing their own crazy <laughs> I love that. I mean, it it makes me think this is this is another moment where you taught me we were at um, we were at the retirement celebration symposium for Cheryl Clark at Rutgers. And um, and with with my co-editor, we had been working on revolutionary mothering for so long. We didn't even know if it was going to happen. We've been working on it for all these years. But um, you asked me something and I was like, well, you know, we're trying to have this anthology published revolutionary mothering and which I was nervous to even share. Cause I was like, is it even happening? It's been seven years. But, um, but you said, I belong in that book. <laughs> and I was like, of course you do. <laughs> but in that moment, it was like this double moment of, I was so glad I shared it with you, even though I was nervous. But then also, you you just claimed it. You know, like it was it was so powerful and beautiful for you to be like, that's who I am. You know, like that that's that's it. And then you said, I mean, you sent the beautiful poem, and we were so happy that you did. Um, but I think about that. I I would love for the I other people who are. I don't remember that. <laughs> You're right. That was a formative moment for me. I was like, this is how, this is what a poet who believes in their poetry, this is what it is. And it really shifted for me. Like, that's so true. You know, like, that's so true that we, we know where we want our voice to be and we can, we can make that happen. We can be honest about that. And we can collaborate and call in the collaborations that we that we want to have. And I really hope that the people who are who are listening to this right now and who are watching this think about that. Like, you know, what would be at this time in your life? What would be that thing that you know, you know, you know, it's for you. You know, it's part of what you do. It, it resonates with you. And what? How could you be braver about it? Because this is Cheryl. This is like a practice in my life because of you. I think about that. I'm like, well, let me channel the confidence of Cheryl Boyce Taylor, you know, which which is not, it comes, it comes from your relationship with your work and your understanding that you know what your work is. Well, how do you know what your work is? I learned that from the greats, Audre Lorde, Exactly. I remember studying with Entezaki and she would, you know, she would give assignments and sometimes people would or wouldn't do them. And she came in there screaming one day and she said, what are you doing? Why, Why are you wasting my time? She says, the dancer goes to the bar every day. The poet must go to the writing table. We were like, oh, okay, All right. So, you know, I feel like the strength of those women is what is what I'm walking under or walking with. And um, I, I want to say one other thing that don't be so concerned about getting your work published because just write it. If no one wants it, self-publishing is easy and it's out there and it's available. 
So sometimes we use all these things to get caught up in ways where we stop ourselves from giving the gifts that we have. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for saying that. I mean, I think that, and I, I just want to underline what you just said, because I think that, and I, lo- I love that. I love that the writer must go to the writing table because that's how I see you. Like you are so diligent about your writing. And there are many mornings when I wake up and I'm like, get to the desk. What would Cheryl do? You know, like get to the desk. And that's what gives, that's what gives that grounded, centered knowledge of what our work is. It's that daily relationship with it. It's a consistent relationship with it, of going back to it again and again, not as an idea, you know, like I think I'm a writer, but like, what have I learned from actually continuing to do this writing, in my case, when I'm afraid, when I'm afraid about what it will mean if today I write something and then I don't think it's good and such a big definition to me of who I am as a writer, what will happen if I, you know, like all of those things, it's like, okay, but still come to the table, you know, come to the table. And um, I wonder if you could share anything about your practice your writing practice, you know, your, your regular repeated. And and I know, you know, not everybody writes every day. Um, I do. And it's, it's really partially because of your influence on me that I, that I do. Um, But I wonder if there are things you want to share about your process with other. Um, Yes. And one of the things I want to say before I forget is when you sit down to write, don't expect that it will be great and powerful. It might be, But that's a chance you're taking if you don't sit down and write. You don't know what will come out there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I don't write every day anymore. (laughs) I hope I'm not bursting your bubble. (laughs) (laughs) But when I am not sitting with pen to paper, I'm really thinking about it. I'm thinking about the things that I need to share, the things I want to be, the things I want to remember. How can I just put this down so I don't forget it, so I don't lose it? With the writing group, Elma's Heart Circle, I would say last year we wrote about 100 poems. Mm -hmm. And we did that the year before as well. And so that, and how we work is, you know, the, April 30, 30, when you write a poem every day and you have to turn it in by midnight. Well, um, it was 28, I think it was 2018 when we wrote in April 30 poems and we were so excited about those 30 poems that we wrote. We got together, we had a, a meeting where we talked about the poems and we said, why don't we write in June? Everybody was looking at each other like, what? (laughs) Just writing 30 poems. We said, that's right in June. So we said, okay. Before the conversation was over, we had said, you know what? We're going to write in every month that has 30 days. (laughs) And we did it. We did it. Oh, wow. You know, you just have to challenge yourself and see what happens. And as I said, not every poem that you write is going to be the bomb, but you'll have it. 
you'll probably be able to put it in a zuhitsu. <laughs> <laughs> the zuhitsu, um, which is the um, the poem, for, the text from the from the 10th century. It's a poetic form from the 10th century. And uh, one of the poets that really does that work very well, uh, or that has brought that back, is Kimiko Han. And I, I studied with her, I learned from her, and she does it really well. And the way that she describes that poetic form, she says it's a, it's a woman's form. You know how a woman is always thinking, okay, I'm getting the kids ready for work, but what are we having for dinner? Oh, I got the iron that blah. So it's like when you're writing, your mind is going to every different area. One of the one of the zuhitsus in the book is called Apricot Begonias. <laughs> and I wrote it, um uh, I I wrote it thinking about the week. I wrote it the week after my son was buried, but I wrote it thinking about all that was going on at that time. And so, um, you know, check that out and see, see what you can glean from it. But I write all of my feelings, everything, like I said, I write it all down and then I go back and edit later. What also helps me to write is to have a writing partner. Mm. And so this this group that that I write with, Elma's Heart Circle, we are writing partners for each other. I'm telling you, we're turning in our books like you wouldn't believe, you know. So I think, and you don't need a group to have a writing partner; just one other person. Mm. Mm. You know, I can now. I'm have I have a harder time with nonfiction and fiction, but poetry is my thing. I could lay in bed and write a poem. Well, now at my age, I have to pick up a paper and write it down. (laughs) (laughs) My friend Billy used to tell me, oh, I wrote these poems in my head. And I was like, what the hell? (laughs) I didn't write them down. And he would say, oh gosh, I can't do that. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I can I can write them down. I keep different journals for different things. Like um, the Mama Fife journal was a different journal from We Are Not Wearing Helmets. And uh, sometimes they all come together. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, I've said this so many times already. Just keep writing. Yes. That is your responsibility. That is your job. I'm lucky now that I'm retired, but if you're not retired, if you're working, you must find the time for that writing. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's you right. Find that time. I know my, my friend Keisha Gay Anderson, who is a mother, Keisha would set aside dates for herself to do mm-hmm. her writing. So um, a, a while back, I don't know what day she writes now, but a while back, she would leave the house on Sundays. She would set up her time, one or two hours, whatever it was. And she took that time to write. That was her self-time. And so, you know, the, the other thing that I like to do now that I have the iPhone, I like to dictate into the phone. Of mm. course, I use so many Caribbean words. 
I should just write it down because it never comes out correct. But, you know, when I'm feeling too tired or whatever, I dictate it in my phone. And um, so I have it there the next day or whenever I look and I edit. I, I used to do this crazy thing, too. When I wrote new poems, and this was when I worked, when I took the train, when I would write new poems, I would have them with me all the time, just holding them and petting them and looking <laughs> at them. It, it sounds crazy, but that was one of the things I, I did and still do. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'll be going to the supermarket and I'll drop the new poem in my bag. Uh, yes. <laughs> To be with the poem. I I feel you. I feel you. I think that makes so much sense. We have one more question. And it's from Yellow Okra. Your name better be Yellow Okra. I love that. And sounds like a poem. That sounds like a poem already, right? (laughs) Yellow Okra. I'm here for it. How do we try and facilitate intergenerational healing with our parents and have you ever tried to have these healing conversations about how we were raised with your parents okay because you talked earlier about the way that you raised Malik was different than the way that you grew up in in your household and, and the but then you also collaborated with your mother while raising him yeah that's that's really wise for people who want to who want to uh, facilitate intergenerational healing with their parents. What would you say? Well, that was a hard one for my mother and I. And I have to say that she changed after she became a grandmother. Mm. But I remember one time. Well, I, I left Trinidad when I was 13 and came to live with my aunt for about a year before my mother came here. And that broke my heart. So I I was always trying to talk to my mother about that period. Mm. And then one day I told her, I was an adult already, I told her that I was in therapy. And my mother cried so hard. Because she said, I did everything right. Why are you criticizing me? So I had a really hard time talking to her about that healing, talking to her about the things that I felt I missed in my childhood, like the conversation, just the conversations on young womanhood, on dating, on sex, mm-hmm. on marriage. My mother just could not talk about those things. And at one point, you have to realize that this healing is for you. If she is not able to do it or he, there's no way that you could force them into it. I remember going to therapy and saying to my therapist, I want to tell my mother, you know, whatever the thing was. And she looked at me and she said, why would you do that? She said, your mother is not open to that kind of conversation. You said it to me over and over. So who would this be for, you or your mother? And I really thought about it. And it felt like I was pressuring her into something that she couldn't handle. Mm-hmm. And mm. so from that point, I realized I'm just going to love her 
and support her to and take only what she can give to me. But the other things I needed to heal, I was going to go and heal them on my own. Mm-hmm. My mother was very religious and she believed you take it to God in prayer. And mm-hmm. that's a good thing. But sometimes you also have to take it to a therapist, take it to a friend, take it to a priest or teacher or whomever. Mm-hmm. So that was my long way of saying that sometimes we cannot always get into that healing dialogue with our parents because maybe they're not there. Mm. I love that. Yeah, there's so much wisdom there. And I'm also thinking about, I'm also thinking about the poetry itself, you know, like the, the conversations that happen in the poetry, that that's the place where they can happen. Yes. And, and I know for myself, part of, part of the importance of poetry in my life is exactly that, you know, how to really work with those things that I feel like are impossible to say and it's not necessarily that then I'm going to send the poem to whoever, you know, but it, it is, it is that place, you know, that is, it doesn't have to be silenced just because there may not be someone who's ready to actually have that conversation with me. And you can do like me, hide the book for a year. Speak <laughs> <laughs> it to your mother or whomever it is. <laughs> well, not my mother, because she will, my mom will not have that happen. She'll be like, where is it? Where's my copy? Where's my signed copy? You know, I need at least two signed copies. You know, she, she will be the first one, you know, but, um, but I, w- I would say too, that I have had the experience when you, when you talked about raw air and your mother's experience with it, I did have an experience where I wrote about something and I felt like it was something that I always was told it was about money in our family. And I was always told, don't talk about, you know, like, but I needed to write this and I wrote it and my mom got it. And I was like, Oh no, what's going to happen. And it was just a little like zine that I had stapled. And I, I think I was still in school she read it and she, and she said, I was like, Oh, what's she going to say? And she said, how did you learn to write so beautifully? It was a huge, huge gift. And I think that if I had not allowed myself to write it because of the fear of what, what would my mom think that would have been such a loss, you know, it would have been, well, it would have been my own underestimation, but it also would have been the perpetuation of that silence, you know? And, and I think that part of this is, you know, I've been thinking about visionary daughtering ever since revolutionary mothering. I think part of the visionary daughtering is that, you know, to be able to, to allow my mother to understand she can still generate the things that she can't say through me saying it, you know, and that sometimes that can be, that can be a gift. And sometimes that can be a relief and, and sometimes it's still scary, but you know, (laughs) that, that, um, I think that that's really part of what is so valuable about the act of writing. And again, not necessarily always for publication, but for right. shifting the possibility 
of what I can, what I can say, what I can look at outside of my own head and trusting, as you said, trusting the power of words. Yeah. Writing just, in my opinion, just frees you up. It gives you an opportunity to talk to someone else. I have this line I always used to use earlier. I would tell myself this, if you hear River talking, write it down. Mm. River meaning all the stories, all the love, all the insecurities. If you hear them talking, write it down. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's, That's the best advice I could give. And again, as you said, no one ever has to see it. That's right. Maybe when you're stronger, maybe when you write it, you don't feel as strong and as powerful, but... The time will come when you will. Oh, I love that. And you'll be so glad that you haven't had written it down. That see, that's the tweetable. I I bet if y'all aren't already tweeting this, <laughs> you should. Cheryl Boyce Taylor said, if you hear the river talking, write I it down. Oh, I love I would I will wear that on a shirt. <laughs> I might. Put it. You, you should make those. I might put it up on my mirror. Like, mm, yeah, the, the love and that listening. And this, this is our last moment. So if there's any, that's a beautiful closing thought. But if there's any other closing thoughts you would like to share, this is that time. It's so beautiful to be talking to you. I love you so much. And I love the gifts you bring to our world. I thank you. I thank you, Alexis. Yes. Uh, that means so much. Can't wait to hear more about what's coming from you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and thank you so much because you are helping me so much with this, with this uh, new biography of Audrey Lord. And yes, thank you for your example. Thank you for all your teachings. I'm learning from you in moments that you don't even remember, and I'm going to continue. <laughs> I'm going to continue that, and. Just love you so much and gratitude to everyone who put this event together, everybody who showed up. Hey, Market Books, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And a quick shout out to Q-Tip and Ali Shaheed Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Of the crew. A big shout out to Malik Fife Dog Taylor. Yes, yes, forever, forever. Uh, love you so much. Have a nice day, love. You too. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.